Daniel chapter 11. We're going to be looking at Daniel's final vision uh, that he receives. Actually, it's chapters 10, 11, and 12. They all go together. And uh, so we'll be looking at this particular vision today. All right, so let me make sure I'm on the right screen here. There we go. Daniel's final vision, chapter 11. And of course, the big idea for this whole series, which by the way, should end next week. How many of you, your Bible's just kind of like automatically falling open to Daniel right now? Okay. Um, so I think I went through the book of Acts for two years in my previous ministry. And I'm pretty sure their Bibles did follow open to the book of Acts every week. But we'll finish up Daniel next week. But I trust that you have been encouraged. Uh, we live in uncertain times, don't we? Uh, we live in troubling times. Uh, and so Daniel speaks to us in this regard, that we're secure in a sovereign God's hands. And we're going to see that in our text uh, many different times today that God reigns supreme even when earthly rulers seem to do whatever they want to do, even when it defies the true and the living God. And um, there may be willful, uh, just as the, the king that we have mentioned in our text for us today. And so in Daniel chapter 11, uh, we're going to uh, start down at verse 35 and 36. Now, let me tell you why we're starting there instead of all of the previous verses 1 through 35. Verses 1 through 35 in Daniel's day were all future. So what were they then? They were all future. But from our perspective, they're all past. Now, here's what we learn from that. God kept his word. Because he's a sovereign God. And if you want to go back and read, uh, you're going to read uh, in secular history about the conflict that the Persian Empire had with the Greek Empire. And then you'll read about Alexander the Great coming on the scene. And uh, he's referenced at the beginning of chapter 11. Uh, not his name, but his being the kind of king that conquers the world. And then he dies suddenly, and he divides his kingdom between his four generals. Well, two of those generals, uh, Ptolemy and the Seleucid uh, Empire, so the Ptolemy Empire and the Seleucid Empire, uh, they end up in about 400 years of war against one another, trying to gain supremacy, one Greek empire over the other Greek empire. And so that's what you have in chapter 11 when it talks about the, all of these different battles and all these different kings going out against one another. Well, that's the, the Ptolemies in Egypt going out to battle against the Seleucid Empire in Syria. And so Israel, poor little Israel, is stuck in between. And so you got Syria on the top of your head and you got Egypt under your feet. And they're constantly going at one another and passing through your land and owning you, right? And so, once again, we have to remember that this is a Jewish book. Daniel's a Jewish prophet, and he's very concerned about the future of his people. What's going to happen to them? And so, 
God shows Daniel, and Daniel understands that Israel is going to be in a bad way for a long time. And when we come to about the beginning of the fourth century after Christ, all of this has been fulfilled. And we'll mention some of that as we go through the, the passage today. Um, the, the secular historians in the third or the fourth century, at the close of the third, beginning of the fourth century, they looked at this and they said, what? There's no way that that could have been prophecy. That had to actually be um, recording a fake prophecy. And then you put it in. And so it was written after all these events happened. And then you go back and backdate it. All right. And so that's how they looked at it. They said, it's just too remarkable. It's too detailed. I mean, the way that it lined up with what actually happened in history and all the battles that are described and all the different kings and even a king sending out a tax collector and all of that that would be killed trying to raise money for his king. I mean, all of that is in chapter 11. And in Daniel's day, that was all future. But from about the third or the fourth century after Christ, it was all history. And they looked at it and said, there's no way, all right? It's, it's just, it's a fabrication. It's writing something that already happened and then passing it off as prophecy. Um, the other thing, the other way that they look at it is, well, it's just a myth. It's just a fairy tale, all right? So these things never really took place. And then, of course, the third way that you can look at the passage is there's a sovereign God. And he orchestrates human affairs. And he made a prophecy in advance because he knows. He's all-knowing God. And he recorded it in advance, and then it all happened as he said it would. So that's verses 1 through 35. Now, verses 36 through 45 remain prophetic. They remain yet to be fulfilled. And so we'll explain that as we go through uh, the passage today. And so really what I would like us to concentrate is just on the, the end of the chapter, uh, because it's prophecy that is important uh, to us and uh, to the, the future and to the people of Israel, because it pertains to them as well. And when we look at this, uh, as Christians, we have inherited the spiritual blessings of Israel. And we like to claim those kind of things. But we should also inherit the sorrows of Israel. And a true believer will grieve and pray for Israel because they do not yet believe in their Messiah and they still have a troublesome time uh, that is ahead of them. All right, so uh, what is, let's do this. Let's just go ahead and read the end of the chapter, uh, verses 35 or 36 through 45. And I better find my glasses. Give me just a second. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, 
for that which is determined shall be done. Verse 37. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, um, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honor the God of fortress and a God whom his fathers knew not, shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Verse 39. Thus he shall do in the strong, strongest fortress with the foreign God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. Now, verse 40 starts a shift. And let's read verse 40. And at that time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall... Enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Amnon. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps." Verse 44, but tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to sweep away many. And he shall plant the tabernacle of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. All right. So. Verses 36 through 45, we're going to look at two different sections today as we go through this. The first one is the prosperity of the willful king. Uh, verses 36, or 36 through 39. Uh, verses 35 transitions with this phrase. So look at the end of verse 35. The time of the end. So that's a beginning, that's a, a transition marker. And if you go over to chapter 12, you'll also see that phrase, the time of the end. So what you have at the end of chapter 11, before we get to chapter 12, is this bracket of time. And it's the, at the end of human history, as we would call it, or the time of the Gentiles. So remember... This is a Jewish book. This is about considering the world and all the political events through Jewish eyes, because that's how God is looking at it. When you listen to the news, don't get caught up and look at the world through Washington or Sacramento. You should listen to world news through the lens of what God is doing in the Middle East specifically what God is doing in Israel. And then all of the current events will begin to make sense to you. You can see God's handprint in current affairs and his molding and shaping and driving things to fulfill his word, specifically his prophecies. So Daniel then introduces to us 
In chapter 11, let's go back to uh, Daniel 11, I believe it's verse 21. And in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. All right. So this is that fulfilled and recorded history. It's already done. The king that's mentioned here in verse 21 is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And he is a type of wicked king. He's called a vile king. And the antitype is of Antiochus Epiphanes is the willful king that's mentioned in verse 36. So you have a vile king and a willful king, but in many areas they overlap. But they're two different kings, and I want to show you why there's two different kings here. All right, if you read chapter 11, you have the story of the Seleucid Empire in Syria and the Ptolemaic Empire in Egypt constantly going at one another, the king of the north, the king of the south. And when you read chapter 11, your head begins to spin. Why is this in the Bible? I don't get it. And so you just constantly get this drive, the north and the south. They're always fighting, all right? It's not the American Civil War, all right? It's not the Yankees versus the rebels. But it's the Seleucids versus the Ptolemaic Empire. Constantly the king of the north and the king of the south are always going at one another. Antiochus Epiphanes IV is one of the Seleucid kings. And he's actually the last. And I'll tell you what he did that caused him to be the last. <laughs> okay. But when you get to verse 36, you're introduced to a new king, the willful king. And then what you see in verse 40 Listen to this. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him and the king of the north shall come against him. So you have three kings here. The northern king, the southern king, kind of following what you already previously had in chapter 11. But in the middle, this willful king. So this is a new person that's being introduced here at the end of our chapter. All right, let's go back to what Antiochus Epiphanes did. Okay. So once again, I said there's lots of areas of parallel and overlap because he's the type of the anti-type. And Antiochus Epiphanes, he invaded Egypt and he also persecuted Israel. And this is what led to his downfall. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes, um, he was a very willful king. He uh, struck coins with his image that proclaimed that he was God. But in the form of his Greek gods, Zeus, he got so upset with the Jewish people for uh, trying to align themselves with the Ptolemaic Empire in Egypt and all of the intrigue, and then the priestly class, they were fighting amongst themselves that he said, enough's enough. I can't handle all this drama. We're going to abolish the Jewish religion. 
And so he stopped the sacrifices at the temple. He raided the temple. He set up an image of himself portrayed as the god Zeus. And then he sacrificed a pig on the Jewish temple. And that, folks, was war with the Jewish people. They just went crazy when he did that. And for a couple of centuries, they fought against him. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes went up to Syria and he died in battle shortly after that. And God said, no, you're not going to profane my temple and get away with it. And so God killed him in battle. And so that's another reason why Antiochus Epiphanes can't be the same king as at the end of the chapter, because he never returned to Egypt a second time, whereas the king at the end of the chapter, he does. So in 167, these events unfolded, and eventually um, the priestly class um, of the Maccabee family, they overthrew the Greek empire. And they cleansed the temple and reinstituted the sacrifices. And as they were trying to get the temple back up and going, they had to light the, the candelabra, which as we know is the menorah. Are you familiar with the menorah? Yes? No? All right. And so it takes olive oil. And it took about seven days of supply to get that candelabra are completely full. Well, they only had one day of supply, but they went ahead and just live it and had a, a dedication service. And then tradition says that that oil miraculously lasted for a week. And that's where we get Hanukkah. All right. So Hanukkah started in this period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament through the war that they had with this Greek king called Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who was a vile person, and he persecuted the Jewish people, and uh, there was war against him, and all of that's prophesied, so we don't have time to go into that today. But um, he's the type of the willful king. All right. Now, I want you to keep a ribbon here, keep your bulletin here. I'd like you to go over to the New Testament, to the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of God, says that the Antichrist is a future event. Let's read verses 1 through 4. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter, as from us, as the day of the Lord is present. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come the falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, 
so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. All right, now, one other passage I want you to go to before we go back to Daniel, Matthew chapter 25. Actually, Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now, all of this is going to make sense when we go back to Daniel chapter 11 and 12. So you go ahead and turn there and you can get a head start on me. But I want you to also just listen to Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whosoever readeth, let him understand. So in the same chapter, Jesus says, when you see what Daniel says, Watch out, because this individual is going to set himself up as God, and he's going to cause trouble for Israel like there has never been in the history of the world. Now let's go back to Daniel chapter 11 and Daniel chapter 12. So in Daniel chapter 11, we see the prosperity of this willful king. Verse 36, he shall do according to his will. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that which is determined shall be done. Neither, verse 37, shall he regard the gods of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall magnify himself above all. All right, so now you have a good picture from 2 Thessalonians 2 uh, and Daniel about this willful king from the 4th century under the early church father Jerome. This passage in Daniel 11 has been pretty much universally looked at as the Antichrist. That's what we call him today. That he will set himself up and, and demand that everybody looks at him to be God. And that he alone should be worshipped. Now go over to chapter 12 and you'll see that he follows that up with a time of persecution against Israel. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, who standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. 
And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, everyone that is found written in the book. So next week, we'll get into what is known as the tribulation. Uh, so this is his final vision, part one. Next week will be part two. But Jesus said it, and Daniel said it. Israel is going to have a time of trouble that will make Hitler's Holocaust look like a holiday. That's staggering to think about. I mean, six million Jews died in Hitler's Holocaust. And if God says that no time of trouble can be compared to the time of trouble that Israel's heading into, ouch. We need to have a heavy heart of sorrow for Israel. We need to be praying for them, that they can find Christ as their Messiah. Now, let's go back and begin to break down this uh, verse, uh, verse by verse as we go through. All right, so the prosperity of the willful king. He exalts himself. You know, that's antithetical to the spirit of Christ. Because Christ humbled himself and tasted death for every man. So here's the Antichrist, who is opposite of the Christ, and this man is exalting himself. Um, you know, humanism, that man is God, that man is in charge of his own destiny, that's what's ruling our culture today. This is the spirit of the Antichrist that already is working in our culture today. This is why people are, are willful. This is why people promote themselves. And as Christians, we should not live that way. We should consider ourselves to be servants and not exalting ourselves in pride and in arrogance. So this future willful king, verse 36, he shall do according to his will. Nothing stops him. Now, I'm just going to interject my own personal political opinion here for a moment. But I think that we have in the text of Daniel 11, we have a type who Antiochus Epiphanes IV was also a willful political ruler. And I think all through history, we have men in political office that do whatever they want to do. They don't pay attention to the law, all right? And I think our governor, who was the former mayor of San Francisco, he just did whatever he wanted to do. He said, I know what the people of the state of California voted for, that to put it in the state constitution, that marriage is between a man and a woman. I don't care. I'm issuing same-sex marriage license in the city of San Francisco. And folks, he toppled the whole nation. Really, he did. And uh, during the pandemic, he did whatever he wanted to do against his opponents, yielding that as a political weapon. Now, I'm not going to go any, into it any more than that. But he's not the only person. There, there have been dictators around the world. I think there's one in Russia kind of doing these things right now, right? Whatever he thinks he wants to do, he's going to try to get away with it and do it. And so this is the spirit that, that humanity always has. Now, fine and dandy, I've pointed the finger at someone outside the church. But now let's point the finger inside the church. 
what does God require of thee? But to do justice and to walk humbly with thy God. In Sunday school today, we learned about King Saul. King Saul was fearful. And the major thing about him, though, was he was disobedient. He ignored the word of God on several occasions. Samuel told him, wait, seven days, I'll come, I'll give the sacrifice, just wait. Seven days comes, he says, Samuel's not here, I'm going to go ahead and offer the sacrifice. God tells Saul, destroy the Amalekites. He goes in, he defeats them, he spares the king and the best of the animals, and he says, hey, I can use these to worship God. I'll sacrifice them in God's honor. And Samuel comes to Saul and says, what is this that you have done? Oh, I obeyed God. Really? Then what's the bleeding of the sheep that I hear in my ears? What is this that you have done? You've done foolishly. And then 1 Samuel 15, 22. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and hearken than the fat of rams. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, God has rejected you from being king. You see, God's people have an arrogance problem, right? We do. Every single human being has an arrogance problem. I know I have that problem in my heart, and you do too. And so let's not look at this from the outside and say, yeah, that Antichrist, yeah, he's willful, he's arrogant. And yeah, look at all those that we don't agree with politically. Yeah, they're arrogant. Well, let judgment begin in the house of God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he shall exalt you. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Folks, we cannot have pride in our life and expect to receive the grace of God. Because when we're proud and arrogant, we think, I've got this. And we live... Without a God, we become practically speaking, we become practical atheists. And you're going to see that that's exactly what happens here with this man. So the next one there is his atheism. So let's look at this. Um, it says here, he shall magnify himself above every God and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that which is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the gods of his fathers, nor the desire women, nor regard any god, for he shall magnify himself above all. Comparing that with First Thessalonians, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, we see then that this man, this willful king, uh, sets himself up above everybody on the planet earth and not only does he do that, but then he starts speaking blasphemies against the true God. And he sets himself up in his own mind is, well, <laughs> there is no God. I dare God to stop me. I'm God, actually. So why don't you just worship me? And uh, so maybe he writes a, a, a book. Uh, maybe it's a new work that this atheist man will do. And he presents arguments that people haven't thought of before. And he destroys in humanity uh, 
the, the concept of the true and the living God by his great blasphemies and exalting and boasting himself. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, this can't be him because Antiochus Epiphanes IV was not an atheist. He believed in the Greek gods and he portrayed himself as the god Zeus. This willful king, he neither regards the God of his fathers, verse 37. By that phrase, he may be a Jewish man that's an apostate Jew, all right, the God of his fathers. The argument against that is that the gods, all right, in the plural, is Elohim, but in support of this being a Jewish apostate man, in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. The word Elohim is used there. And we don't say in the beginning, the gods created the heavens and the earth. We say God created heaven and earth. So we can get that interpretation here from verse 37, that he's an apostate Jew that ignores his Jewish faith. And then the next phrase, nor the desire of women. Let's just be honest. We don't know what that means. Here's a couple of guesses. All right. Commentators have said that this refers to uh, the, the Greek goddesses or any goddess um, such as Diana of Ephesus or uh, Iris or uh, Asher, the queen of heaven, uh, the virgin of Guadalupe or whatever. All right. Any, any female deity. All right. That's one interpretation. But looking at it through Jewish eyes, because it's a Jewish prophet, a Jewish text, Jewish women want to give birth to the Messiah. So he would hate the Messiah as portrayed in the scriptures. He is going to be anti against the Messiah, anti Christ. And so he's totally against this. Then verse 37 says, nor regard any God. So he's an atheist. Now he does use religion for political conveniences. Let's not forget that. Okay. So look at verse 38. But in his estate shall he honor the God of fortress. You know what his God is? His God is the God of war. That's what he lives for. He loves conquering and intimidating and bullying. His, his God would be the God of war. Okay? And that's not typically the way that the Jewish kings ruled. Okay? And a God who his fathers knew not. It's not how the Jewish kings ruled. Uh, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stone and pleasant things. How many of you know that war is expensive? All right. And so here he's receiving all the treasures of his exploits, honoring his God. Okay. Bringing in the wealth uh, to support his further war campaigns. And so then verse 39, thus he shall do in the strongest fortress with a foreign God. So this idea is that he, he builds a, a magnificent fortress that's the strongest that's ever been built uh, with this strange God of war. Okay? And he shall acknowledge and increase with glory. 
and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. So whoever helps him conquer, he rewards them with wealth and land. He divides it out so that he can manipulate this. All right. Now, all of this is very interesting. We're going to see this in two places in the text, which carries our theme for the series. Secure in the hands of a sovereign God. Look at the end of verse 36. And he shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. It's a very important word, until. Until that is accomplished. That which is determined. See, the God that he speaks blasphemies against is just using him for his own purposes. Then we come down to the end of verse 45. He shall come to his end and none shall help him. So willful rulers in our generation, in our lifetime, or in the next generation, or previous generations, you know what? Their authority, their kingdom, their rule has boundaries. They're only in charge for so long. And the God of gods is using them for his own glory and for his own purpose. The Lord hath made the wicked for the day of judgment. Now, if we go back to verse 36, God's indignation is against his own people, Israel, for their idolatry. And he's trying to purify them. Go over to chapter 12 for just a moment. We have the, the same concept here, okay, that God has a purpose to purify his people through all of the calamity that is happening to them. And um, verse 10, many shall be purified and made white and tested, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. So God accomplishes his purpose in his people Israel. And those that are humbled, they receive the truth, they understand. But God is using this wicked Antichrist to bring his people to himself. Now, this man is the same man that has been mentioned many times in the book of Daniel already. Chapter 7, he's known as the little horn. Uh, chapter 9, he is the head of the fourth beast. And so Daniel chapter 2, there were four kingdoms. Um, and then we saw the four beasts. And so we we're trying to tell you the three kingdoms were um, Babylon, Persia and Greece. Those are spelled out very clearly. The fourth kingdom is never spelled out clearly. I like to think that that fourth kingdom, obviously it's yet future, but it's unnamed. And maybe it doesn't have a name because maybe it is an international kingdom because he comes out of the 10 toes in Daniel's vision and the 10 horns and he divides and conquers three of them. So maybe you can't give it a name. So here's where I'm going with this. 
All right. How many of you have heard that the fourth kingdom is Rome? You've heard that taught that way. Okay. How many of you have heard at the end of the time that the Roman Catholic Church is the apostate whore of Revelation 17? Have you heard that? Okay. When we start going to that level of being that specific, I think we lose sight that this is a Jewish prophecy, not a Gentile prophecy. And I think that we lose sight of the fact that the future Antichrist is not going to be a religious person. So he, if he does have any kind of religion, then he's only using it for his political purposes. So I don't think that that's a way to view that. I think that introduces and confuses too many people when we get into that level. All right, let's look at his next one, materialism. You ever heard the phrase, who has the most toys wins? Okay, here he's collecting gold and silver and precious stones. He's able to give out gifts, very materialistic oriented. Um, do you know that's a problem for the church today? As Christians, we get very materialistically oriented. Life's about possessions. Say, well, pastor, how do you know that? Why don't you just check your Amazon order history? Okay. I bet you, you know, the, the, the Amazon delivery man by first name. Okay. And we get caught up in our possessions and we play that game too. And that's antithetical to the life of Christ because the life of Christ is all about giving, not receiving and taking. So these are some of the ways that the willful king, he prospers. All right, let's move on then. Let's look at the demise of the willful king, verses 40 through 45. And at that time of the end, shall the king of the south push at him and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass through. Not everybody is happy with this powerful king who has conquered and has authority over the nations. And they rise up against him. Now, south and north? I mean, hey, anybody in the southern hemisphere could qualify, right? Or anybody in the Northern Hemisphere could qualify. No, you have to keep it in context, looking at Israel as the focal point of what is north and south of Israel, all right? So, north and south of Israel. It's mentioned Egypt. Uh, it talks about uh, the Libyans. It talks about the other nations, the Ethiopians that are there. So, perhaps in the future, there's a strong African coalition of Egypt, Ethiopia, and Libya. And they raise a huge army to come against this willful king. And then armies of the north come against him uh, like a whirlwind. And so they're trying a pincer maneuver, maneuver where they're going to crush him. All right. And... Um, but then in verse 40, at the end of it, he says, she shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass through. It fails. Ezekiel 38 and 39 tell us about the destruction of the king of the north. And then we see that he possesses the, the treasures of the land of Egypt. Verse 42, Egypt shall not escape. 
Um, so he eventually wins. And so it doesn't look like that there's anybody who's going to oppose him. Nobody can stop this willful king. I mean, every time he goes out, he just wins. He wins. He wins. Now, let me go down a little rabbit hole for just a second. And I, I can't get this out of the text. But some commentators said that the king of the north who comes against him actually kills him. And this is the reason why he's resurrected and brought back to life in the book of Revelation. And the world says, who is like this man? There's nobody like him. And so then they begin to worship him for this apparent miracle. So it doesn't seem like anything is going to stop him. So verse 41, he shall enter also into the glorious land. Well, what's the glorious land? That's Israel. Right? It's the promised land. So he's taken possession of Israel here and many other countries. All right? Now, some of the countries to the east of Israel escape for a time. Um, verse 42, he stretched forth his hand also upon the countries. So he's defeated many, many, many nations. And verse 43, he becomes even more wealthy. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. The Libyans, the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. In other words, he's got his foot on their neck, right? He, he controls them. And now, verse 44, something unusual happens. But tidings out of the east. Well, where's east? Well, in relation to Israel. And out of the north, so some other power that's in the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and to utterly sweep away many. And he shall plant the tabernacle of his palace or his tent between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. So he sets up his seat of government in Israel on the Mediterranean coast between Jerusalem and the coast, and it's palatial living. And it doesn't seem like anything can stop this guy whatsoever, nothing at all. He's heard these troubling rumors. Other commentators said this is the 200 million man army that comes from the kings of the east. Could it be China? Could it be India? Could it be Pakistan, Iran, Iraq? Those countries are east. We don't know. But this, whatever it is, he kind of breaks off his Egyptian campaign and he goes back to Israel. And uh, what he's going to do in chapter 12, where he's going to begin persecuting Israel, he breaks his promise with them. But he's prospering, folks. And it just looks like there's no way that it's going to come to an end. There's nobody that can stand up against him. Now, doesn't that just seem the way that evil is getting into this country today? You just can't stop it. It just prospers. But then look at the end of verse 45. Then he shall come to his end and none shall help him. Why is that? Well, because this is the stroke of a sovereign God who says to this Antichrist, I'm done with you. And he comes to his end. And we'll pick up more about that as we go next week.
But today, you are secure in a sovereign God's hands, even in a time when evil seems to be unchecked, seems to be prospering. Don't lose your faith because evil prospers, Psalm 73. But then don't join evil. Don't become an arrogant person. Don't become a willful person. Don't become a materialistic person. Don't have that spirit of antichrist in your life. Check that. Humble yourself under the hand of God and he will exalt.